awful lot has been written about Bruce Lee and will continue to be written about Bruce Lee. Um, a lot of it is questionable. Even basic facts about his life um, remain mythologised and uh, inadequately understood. Um, the person who has written the definitive biography of Bruce Lee is Matthew Polly, and his book was called Bruce Lee, A Life, and it came out in um, 2018. And Matt came to our conference and gave a presentation all about his um, research and his understanding of Bruce Lee. And at this time, I thought it would be a really good idea to share his presentation one more time on this podcast. So what follows is Matt Polly's keynote at the 2018 uh, Martial Arts Studies Conference, which focused on Bruce Lee. Enjoy. Uh, I'm honored to be here. One of my actual great frustrations was that in researching Bruce Lee, there wasn't that much academic research done about him. Um, if you look up Bruce Lee, you'll find a couple chapters in books about Asian masculinity in Western media. And he gets the chapter as the guy who reimagines it, as it were, uh, in complicated and problematic ways. But not many people write about Bruce Lee the way I think of him as an important cultural figure. Uh, and so a conference like this, uh, I think, is important because it starts the process of thinking about Bruce Lee, uh, not only the man and the myth, but also the contribution that he made in bridging East and West. Now, uh, my wife is an academic. She's an astrophysicist at Yale. And when she heard I was coming to my first ever academic conference, she said, you got your talk and your slides ready? And I said, oh, baby, I'm just going to wing it. <laughs> um, and so uh, she laughed at me a lot. And she probably will about 25 minutes from now when this goes terribly awry. But that does mean I will not be reading you a paper. I wanted to talk about uh, open it up mostly for questions because I'm a more seminar guy than a lecture guy, but initially talk a little bit about Bruce Lee's youth. The way we biographers think about people is that the child is the father of the man. And one of the things I thought about spending seven years researching Bruce Lee was why is it that my image of him in my head and the image a lot of people I met along the way had of Bruce Lee was so different than the person being revealed through the process of the interviews and the research. Why was this disparity? And one of the big issues for Bruce Lee and why he's sort of a fascinating character is outside of Southeast Asia, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, where he was bigger than the Beatles, the biggest star they'd ever seen. Outside of that small and the Mandarin circuit, outside of that area, Bruce Lee was almost completely unknown when he died. Uh, Enter the Dragon is released, as most of you know, 45 years ago in August. He, he dies July 20th, 1973, two to three weeks before his movie's released, turning him into an international icon, which means all of his fame was posthumous. More importantly, that means that no one had any idea who Bruce Lee was outside of the movie as text. We, you know, that's a figure us academics like to talk about. The medium is text, but in this case, it was true. Like, if you wanted to know Bruce Lee, you just went and rewatched Enter the Dragon again because there was nothing else available. And then people went back and they watched Way of the Dragon, Fist of Fury, Big Boss, and then they stopped. And so Bruce Lee became those four movies, 
Uh, and then in 1993, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which is based on Linda Lee's uh, updated and Babylorize is a, not a nice phrase, but a uh, whitewashed version of his story um, was released, and it was based on her memories of him. And she meets him as a 20, 21-year-old kung fu instructor. And so that movie is Bruce Lee post-returning to America as a martial artist and a martial arts instructor who is a perfect husband, perfect father, who kind of randomly falls into the movie business. And so our idea of Bruce Lee is mostly in the media, <clears throat> at least in my head, and I think that I speak for a lot of people, shaped by watching the last four movies he ever made and dragging the Bruce Lee story. And the image we have is Bruce Lee, the martial artist, and an almost accidental actor. <clears throat> in truth, uh, Bruce Lee is a much more complicated figure, uh, and the way I got sort of fundamentally altered my understanding of Bruce was to go back even before him. Uh, in all the books uh, up until this point, um, Bruce Lee was said to be a quarter German. It was believed that his grandfather was German. In one of the stories, his grandfather was a German Catholic priest who knocked up a Chinese woman and then their child, Bruce's mother, was adopted. This turns out to be complete fantasy. Um, the, the patriarch on the maternal side of his family was Moses Hertog Bozeman, a Dutch Jewish son of a kosher butcher uh, from Rotterdam, who left and joined the Dutch East Asia Company and came to Hong Kong in about 1860 and became the ambassador to the, the Netherlands ambassador to Hong Kong. He made his fortune in the coolie trade. I think most of you know what that is. Um, not a very good business. Uh, and he also bought himself a Chinese concubine with whom he had uh, six children. Uh, then he went bankrupt, abandoned them, moved to California and changed his name to Charles Henry Maurice Bozeman, which is how his Jewish heritage was sort of erased from the history books. Uh, his sons, Bruce's grandfather, Ho Kong Tong, um, apparently had an affair with a British mistress. Uh, we know this because Bruce's mother said under oath during a US immigration file that uh, her mother was 100% British with no Chinese blood. So Bruce was an eighth Dutch Jewish, a quarter English, and five eighths Han Chinese. Uh, so I thought it you know, this year England might not just get the World Cup, but also Bruce Lee. <laughs> so it'll be a great year for y'all. Um, I think this is interesting on several levels. Uh, the first is it complicates his Eurasianness. Uh, and what I found fascinating about Bruce Lee is he lives in a kind of, to borrow a phrase, a liminal space. He has a kind of indeterminate belonging. Uh, and this is one of the things he struggles with throughout his life and also what affects his legacy. Uh, Bruce was born in San Francisco, while his father, a famous Cantonese opera actor, was on the road touring in America, then immediately comes back to Hong Kong, and then when he's 18 year old, come back to America. So he's already caught between two worlds. His last name is changed from Lee, L-I, the Chinese spelling to L-E-E, -E, the anglicized version. And then of course, he's a mixture of many different things. 
As a result, uh, he receives throughout his life periods of discrimination on both sides. A uh, famous story is that uh, some of his classmates, well, Yitman students, some of his uh, Wing Chun brothers, didn't like the fact that he was kind of a cocky young lad who thought he was better than them. And so they tried to get him kicked out of class by telling Yip Man that he wasn't pure Chinese and therefore shouldn't be taught. Uh, and Yip Man didn't kick him out, but said, you should sort of make yourself scarce and have him go train with Wang Shun Long. Uh, and Wong, uh, William Chung, his older Wing Chung brother said, you know, at that time, a lot of Chinese didn't accept Eurasians as being quite equal. And so on that side, he faces discrimination. And then of course he comes to America and the stories we all know that he didn't get Kung Fu because his accent was too thick, that he wasn't cast in parts because he was Asian. And so he was a man caught between worlds. And there's various uh, ways that people deal with that. What Bruce was interesting for was he was just so damn proud of himself and everything he was. And so when he was in China, he was very proud of being American born and westernized. There was a scandal that came up in his life late in life where he wore a full beard. And this was considered kind of auteur and it showed that he wasn't uh, full Han. And so he was sort of mocked in the press. Instead of backing off, he said, you know, after this, I think there'll be three times as many people who have full beards in Hong Kong as had before. Um, and when he was in America, uh, one of his, uh, his first sort of serious girlfriend, Amy Sanbo, who was Japanese-American, said the thing she liked about Bruce was that at a time when so many other young Asian men were trying so hard to be white, Bruce was bursting with pride at being Asian. And she told a story, which is one of my favorite in the book, where uh, he kind of talks Amy into the poet uh, Theodore Rothke. I've got his name right, I think. Uh, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning, really famous poet, who was the biggest poet sort of lecturer at the University of Washington, where Bruce is a student. And so he talks her into this office. He has no idea it's Rothke's because he wants to sort of make out with her, probably. She doesn't say this, but um, he gets her in the office and they're probably snuggling up and then Rothke walks in and she's totally embarrassed and wants to crawl under the thing. And Bruce pops up, walks across, puts out his hand, and goes, oh, so uh, Rafi goes, I'm Rafi, the poet. Who, what are you doing in my office? And Bruce walks over and he goes, I'm Bruce, Sifu Lee, Kung Fu master. <laughs> and Rafi goes, what's Kung Fu? And then Bruce proceeds to give a lecture to the most famous professor on campus about what uh, like Kung Fu is with the Tao and the yin and the yang and whatever. And so I think he's fascinating as an individual who uh, does not have a definite tribe, um, but tries to sort of invent his own. And this is where you get the question, the famous question where he's asked, do you think of yourself as Chinese or North American? And he says, uh, to be honest, I think of myself as a human being because under heaven, we are all of the same family. Uh, and I've always thought that was an incredibly powerful moment in his uh, life. Uh, and that is derived, I think, directly from his own experience of not quite fitting in anywhere else. Uh, another aspect I think of his heritage that is important for us to understand who Bruce Lee was. Uh, when Moses Hurtog Bozeman abandoned his children, uh, their mother became the fourth concubine to a Chinese cattle merchant. 
in order to protect her children, who had no sort of benefactor after he, their father abandoned them. They received, they weren't treated very well by the new uh, master of the house, but they did get a English education in colonial Hong Kong at the, what was called the Central School, I believe is now called Queens College. Um, and this was key because, as mentioned uh, earlier in, in colonial Hong Kong, if you could speak English, if you had an English education, you had a great advantage. Uh, and so very quickly, the oldest son, Sir Robert Hotong, who, uh, if any of you know Hong Kong history, know is the Andrew Carnegie of Hong Kong, uh, becomes at the age of the early 30s, the richest man in Hong Kong. Uh, he's the, uh, the comprador or the foreign agent for Jardine Matheson. Uh, and becomes just fabulously wealthy. He helps finance the, re the Chinese Revolution in 1912. Sun Yat-sen is a, a friend of Sir Robert Hotong. Uh, and his younger brother, Ho Kong Tong, who is Bruce's grandfather, is so rich that he has 13 concubines, uh, which brings up, I think, just as a tangential point, uh, the aspect to which uh, Bruce grew up in a polygamous culture and had a very different view of uh, marriage and monogamy than some of us do in the West. Um, but the reason why I bring this up is because in Dragon, the Bruce Lee movie, and much of the literature about Bruce, he is reported as basically this poor kid who doesn't have any money. And that's because when Linda met him, he was a poor kid. He was working in a Ruby Chow's restaurant in a closet, living in a closet, bussing tables. But the reason he was there is because his wealthy family sent him there as reform school. <laughs> so, so Bruce, essentially, America was Bruce's reform school because he kept getting kicked out of sort of, of prestigious schools in Hong Kong. Um, and why does that matter? Two reasons uh, that he had a wealthy background. One, uh, he got an English education uh, and as we all know with uh, Hollywood movies, if you come in not being <coughs> able to speak English, the odds of you succeeding are close to zero. Uh, and Bruce Lee had the advantage of being proficient but not fluent in English, and that gave him a leg up that he simply could not have succeeded without. So if he had been like Jackie Chan learning backflips from the age of four instead of at LaSalle of parochial school learning how to speak English, he never would have been KO and the whole career goes away, and he probably would have ended up a version of Wong Jack Man. He would have been a small-time kung fu instructor in the Bay Area or in Seattle. The second reason why his uh, wealthy upbringing is important is because one of the things I was trying to figure out was, let me, how am I gonna, I'm just gonna phrase it this way, just how big were Bruce Lee's balls? <laughs> and the reason I asked this question is because he comes over to the States and First thing he does is he sort of kind of struts in, he's like, I'm gonna come up and start teaching everybody Kung Fu. That's one thing. But then he gets this small part in a TV show, Kato, which is not very good, The Green Hornet. Uh, it gets canceled quickly, and he seems to think that he's gonna be the biggest, biggest movie star on Earth. And I wondered, where did this confidence come from? Uh, there weren't any Asian Americans stars. How did he imagine that he would be that? And I think one of the reasons that links to his early childhood is that he was from the very elite of Hong Kong. He came from a family that was the wealthiest clan, and so he grew up thinking that he was someone special. 
And only someone growing up thinking they were someone special could move to a completely different country where they didn't have full mastery of the language and think that they could be the biggest movie star the world had ever seen. So that's why I think his childhood is sort of important to understanding who he was. Another aspect of his childhood, besides his Eurasian wealthy maternal side that's important, is the fact that he nearly died during the cholera epidemic that occurred in the occupation of Japan. Why is this important? Because Bruce Lee afterwards uh, grew up sicker, smaller, and frailer than his brothers and his friends. And we know from the history of martial arts, like Jigoro Kano with judo, that there's nothing like uh, being sick, small, and frail to force some young boys to create their own style of martial arts. <laughs> um, and so even the Gracie family has this kind of story. So it's, it's a very common story, and Bruce Lee is one of those. Your choice is to either be the picked on boy or to be extra tough. And so Bruce chose, who was, had one leg shorter than the other, one undescended testicle, was nearsighted, had problems with acne, and his parents gave him a pierced ear with jewelry in order to scare off the, the ghosts, the, the, the ox ghosts who steal young boys, had to go to school and face all the other boys. And his choice was not to hide in the corner, but to become uh, the biggest badass in the class. Uh, and frankly, developed a reputation that kind of scared people. Uh, and so Bruce Lee is interesting in that sense of being um, the little scrawny kid who, with a chip on his shoulder, becomes the deadliest man on earth. That becomes a sort of archetype. And I think that's tied directly to nearly dying as a child. The other thing that's important about that is his mother had a quote that really stuck with me a long time. She said, because he was so sick, I think I spoiled him. And I think the family dynamics, which very rarely are talked about with Bruce Lee, are crucial in understanding him. Here you have a father who is Han Chinese from a strong, a long line of southern Chinese peasants. His father was desperately poor. Um, as children, they didn't go to school. They had to work. Um, his father got lucky and was uh, singing a menu item. He was hawking menus as a young boy and uh, a famous Chinese opera actor took him on as one of his students and that was his father's way out of poverty. But you have someone who comes from a very poor background and then you have a mother who comes from a very wealthy background. And the dynamic you have is Bruce, who was the youngest son until he was eight years old when Robert's born, is the spoiled youngest troublemaker. And his older brother, Peter, is the archetypal, studious, diligent, introverted. He becomes, he gets a PhD in physics and becomes a scientist. He's sort of like everything that you expect with the stereotype. Peter is his father's favorite and Bruce is the one his father disapproves of the most. And this is interesting because Bruce Lee, of course, as most of you know, did not start out as a martial artist. He started out as an actor. His father was an actor. Bruce Lee appeared before his first camera when he was two months old. His career started in earnest when he was six years. By the time he was 18, he had appeared in nearly 20 Cantonese films. None of them were Kung Fu flicks. And so one of the most powerful moments for me was the two weeks I spent in the Hong Kong film archives watching one after another black and white 1950s Cantonese melodramas 
where Bruce Lee is this street urchin orphan, or he's the good kid, but his father dies, and you know, every sort of variation on the thing you can think of. Uh, but what you realize when you watch all those films is, my God, if you only watch the last four, of course you think he's this Kung Fu master. But if you watch the first 20, um, then you see that there's an actor and an artist first who becomes a martial artist and then becomes a martial arts actor. Um, but back to his father. I think that that relationship is crucial. It's crucial for everyone, frankly. Sons and fathers, it's a long story. Um, but having an actor father and having the disapproved of son going into the same profession. And then more importantly, the first film he gets when he's six years old, the proper film, uh, is because his father brought him on set. And his father appears in the same movie with him. And so because his father's famous, they decide to give Bruce the stage name. His father's name is Lee Hoi Twin. And so they call him Little Lee Hoi Twin. So from the very beginning, he's under his father's shadow. The first time he breaks his father's shadow is when he's 10 years old and he gets a movie that's called uh, The Kid or My Son Asam. That's his first leading role. And his father wasn't sure he wanted his son to be in a leading role. And I think there was a certain rivalry even then. Uh, and he was worried about his boy uh, not becoming a serious student. He didn't want his children to be actors like he was. He considered that a kind of low profession. He wanted them to be professors, doctors, lawyers. Um, but he gave him the part on the condition that he also get a part in the movie. Uh, and so Bruce was the star and his father was one of the co-stars, slightly lower down. And then the movie does extremely well. Anybody who's watched it, you can see sort of Bruce is like very pugnacious and charming. It's the first time you see him do this in a film. Uh, you can see a lot of, he rips open his shirt and pulls out a knife, and you can see a lot of moments that Bruce Lee later incorporated in this film. Afterwards, they want to make a sequel, because it did really well. And his father doesn't allow Bruce to do this, because Bruce is such a bad student that he's afraid that he will completely go off the rails. And so his father essentially crushes Bruce's hopes of being the Macaulay Culkin of Hong Kong, of being the next big child star. Because if he made this film, it would have launched his career. Instead, he goes into a three-year timeout. Um, his father only allows him to go back into films by joining a, um, a socialist troupe of actors who only do ensemble films, in which, in which Bruce will only play kind of minor roles, like 10 minutes in one movie, 20 minutes in another. And so essentially, he crushes Bruce's ability to be a star at the age of 10. And so... As I was doing the research, my feeling was, in many ways, you can understand Bruce's sort of journey as an Oedipal struggle as he seeks to outdo his father in an effort both to gain his approval and also to give a kind of one-up to the old man. Uh, and this is exacerbated, the typical sort of Oedipal struggle of a, a son following in his father's sort of profession and footsteps by the fact that, that Bruce's father... By the time Bruce is a teenager, he's fallen deep into opium addiction. Uh, like a lot of Chinese opera stars, uh, Li Hoi Trin smoked opium. It was considered quite common. Uh, after all, Hong Kong only exists because uh, the British went to war with the Chinese over the right to sell opium. <coughs> um, and so uh, Li Hoi Trin, it's very clear, and it took a while to kind of read between the lines, and that made me, gave me a sense of sort of how deep the pain was. 
because no one comes out and says it. They say things like, their quotes like, um, he stopped coming to dinner with us, or he only wanted to be in his room alone studying. And so there were like little quotes like this. And then Linda has a quote where she says, Bruce was very angry. His father often wasn't mentally there for him. And Linda never criticizes anybody in the book. So this was one of those lines where I felt like, you know, that's something a husband tells his wife, like in some quiet moment. <laughs> so um, his father's opium addiction during the period where Bruce is sort of in the most trouble, I think are very connected. Uh, and it also, it didn't make Bruce a troublemaker, but it exacerbated it. And it exacerbated a couple other tendencies that you start to see th throughout his life. One is the need to be in control. This is fairly common for children of addicts. Um, they, they know they're in a situation in which they're sort of uncertain what will happen next with the parent who's an addict. And so they feel this need to establish control. And so Bruce Lee was very much the gang leader. Um, this is the way I kind of understood him. He very early on formed, they, it, when I would talk to his classmates, they would call them followers. But uh, he, he, he had a crew, and he was the guy kind of on the playground going, hey, buddy, I'll take care of you if you do this. And he'd be like, hey, Joey, come on over here. And then there would be some other kid who had a couple followers, and Bruce would be like, hey, you want some of this? Like, that was sort of hit the way he was on the playground. He was a bit of a gang leader. And if you watch him throughout his life, you can see him replicate that behavior, that same pattern of behavior. So when he goes to Seattle, the first thing he does is, through teaching martial arts, he gathers around him all the tough guy street fighters of the Seattle scene. A bunch of like guys who were like on probation. James DeMille would walk around with a gun in his pocket. You know, He had a bunch of toughs, young toughs, and he taught them Kung Fu, and he made them better fighters, and they became extremely loyal to him. And then when he goes to Hollywood, he tries to do the same thing, but it's difficult because Steve McQueen, James Coburn, these guys already have massive egos. They're not going to be some follower. You don't really see this happen again until he gets to Hong Kong later in life and becomes sort of the gang leader of all the stuntmen. And you can see immediately he does with the stuntmen the same thing he did with the kids on the playground and the street fighters of Seattle. He becomes their gang leader. And what this means is that Bruce was only happy as a human being when he was in charge. And he got extraordinarily angry when authority was put down upon him. And to me, authority always, always means the father figure, particularly in a patriarchy. And so uh, you see it in a couple different ways. One, he was uh, fervently an atheist. Uh, when asked if he believed in God, he joked, I believe in sleep. Um, and I, I put him up, I just don't think he could accept a power higher than his own. Um, and another aspect that you see sort of his rejection of authority is almost every single moment of his career when he comes back to Hong Kong. He hates Lo Wei, not because Lo Wei's so bad, but because Lo Wei's trying to tell him what to do. He gets in long fights with Raymond Chow, not because Raymond Chow isn't, you know, a terrible person, although I'm pretty sure Raymond Chow was cheating him. This, somebody mentioned the 60-40 split. Like, what was their division? I yeah. can't remember who mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Raymond Chow was taking 80. <laughs> there, was, there was no 60-40. But anyway. Um, uh, so, but when Bruce Lee was in charge of his own movie, Way of the Dragon, 
Um, that was the happiest he ever was, I think, professionally in his life. He got to, and everyone who was on the set loved it because when he was in charge, he was comfortable, he was confident, and he was very good at leading people. Um, and the only time he got into trouble was when someone else tried to tell him what to do, and then he got very rambunctious, and I think that's linked directly to his father. Um, I want to open this up for questions, but one final thing uh, I want to point out just kind of underline, which is uh, there's no doubt that Bruce Lee is one of the greatest martial artists to ever live. He was also an absolutely killer, deadly street fighter. Um, but I still think that if you want to understand who he was as a person, you have to look at him as someone who was an actor first, who fell in love with the martial arts and then merged those two passions. Because one of the reasons he's successful on film is because he was able to give it, what was the phrase we were talking about at lunch? Emotional content. What you're taught as a martial artist is to never, especially as a fighter, is to never re reveal pain or emotion. When you get hit, you don't go, oh, I got me. But when you're on screen and you get hit, you've got to sell the hit because they're not actually hitting you. And so Bruce's great gift and the reason why he's so incredibly convincing on film is because he was a pretty good, not great, but pretty good actor before he became a fantastic martial artist. And that's what I think uh, when you watch him on film, also he's a great dancer. And then I think there's people were talking about sort of the musicality of Bruce. Um, he, he, had, he had a rhythm that was different from other martial artist and he was able to kind of grace Kelly like convey that on screen so um, we can talk about that more in questions because I don't want to lecture at you the entire hour but I think uh, the way I understood Bruce and what sort of changed for me was when I went you know he's driving a Porsche he has a full length mink coat and he's smoking pot is that a martial artist? No, that's an actor. Oh, I get it, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I get it. He's an actor who's got this obsession with martial arts. And that's how I sort of, I was like, ah, click. He now I can like fit all the pieces and parts together. And what I think happened with a lot of people writing books is they came at it as um, Bruce Lee, the martial artist, and things that didn't fit just kind of out of the story. Uh, and so they weren't actually trying to clean up his image as, as much as trying to make it fit around an archetype that doesn't quite work for him. Uh, and that's, uh, that's why I think uh, in many ways I was able to sort of uh, look at Bruce Lee's all his different parts and make it sort of feel like a coherent whole. All right. Um, I babbled on for much longer than I intended to. So let me open up for questions and uh, if people get bored I will. I'll tell you about my interview with Betty Tinkpeck. All right.